Vincent Werbergs, Derby. Over the summer, if you've been away, in, um, students, if you've not been around or whatever, we've been looking at the creed, the Apostles' Creed, and kind of taking it line by line and thinking about what it means and why churches have based themselves around it. And um, over the series, we've, we've got to this last phrase, which is what I'm preaching about this evening. And the final line in the creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so that's what we're going to think a little bit about tonight. But for me, because, let's be honest, because of my age, that wasn't funny. That, that wasn't the funny bit. Um, the kind of, the idea of life everlasting or living forever has a certain um, attachment to something. If I can, for those of you who can possibly do this mental gymnastics, come back with me to the summer of 1994. It's 25 years ago. Don't, I don't want to know how many of you weren't alive at that point. That's... that's yeah, thanks. See, this is, this is what happened this morning when I talked about this. All the, all the people of a certain gener- younger generation looked at me as though I'm some kind of old man, granddad type figure. And the people who are a few generations, or a generation above me, were looking at me going, Phil, what are you talking about? Now, I want to talk to you about one of the greatest bands that for a, a brief time um, transformed my life. Okay? Because these lads from Manchester broke onto the scene with a song called Live Forever. And it became a kind of mantra. Some of you are getting this. Some of you are like, this does means absolutely nothing. It became, for me and for my generation, a kind of a mantra that people engaged with and connected with. I'm, it is not in any shape or form any kind of lyrical genius. That is not what this song was ever about. Let me read to you some of these lyrics. And you've got to kind of do it in a, in a Manchester accent and you've got to kind of stand slightly arrogantly underneath your microphone with a bit of a kind of swagger going on. Um, Maybe I just want to fly, want to live, I don't want to die. Maybe I just want to breathe, maybe I just don't believe. Maybe you're the same as me, we see things we'll never see. You and I, we're going to live forever. Genuinely, it's a good song. If you haven't, if, if, if you're into angry men with guitars, it's a really good song. But utter meaningless, utter drivel, nonsense. And um, so, but back then, 1994, 25 years ago, it's ridiculous. Um, GCSEs were just completed for me. Uh, Oasis Blur were having this kind of massive battle about who was going to be the better band. Um, these albums were coming out. They were transforming the kind of Britpop scene. It was cool Britannia back then. It was a simpler time, much simpler. None of this Brexit nonsense. It was just fun and loud, angry music. And I loved it. But that mantra, that kind of concept that we we spoke and we sang about and we kept repeating, actually had no meaning. The creed that we've been looking at over the last however many weeks 
is a mantra, is, is something that we can repeat and we can say and we can believe that actually leads us somewhere. Not some kind of arrogance of youth thinking that we're going to live forever, but actually truth, something firm that we can stand upon. The word creed literally comes from the Latin word credo. It means I believe and trust. It's this sense of this is, this is what I really believe and trust in. This is the foundation upon which I stand. And the Apostles' Creed, as it's become known, was formed from the early Apostles' teachings. The people who'd been around Jesus, who had seen him, who had listened to him, they put this teaching together of this is the Christian foundation. When people came for baptism, they were taught the Apostles' Creed. And so now, 2,000 years later, the church still repeats this every week. We speak about it. We talk it out. We proclaim it. Not because there's any magic in it. Not because it's like some kind of potion or um, spell that we might cast. But because there is power in it. Power to say, I believe in these things. And by believing in these things and by proclaiming these, what we're doing is we're rejecting what the world tells us. We are rejecting the mantra of the pop star who tells us one thing or another. And we're saying, I believe in this. This is what fully gives me hope and meaning and trust. So I'd like us to say the Apostles' Creed together. It's going to come up on the screens. But I'm going to caveat that with a bit of a warning. Often, when people in a church setting like this start repeating something that they see on the screen, that they're being told that they've got to speak, it can ever so slightly become a little bit dirgy. It has that kind of, let's be honest, slightly churchy sound to it. Well, we don't really, we're trying not to be too churchy here at Werbs. So what I'm asking you to do is, as we say this, say it with meaning. Say it with some passion. Say it as though you actually believe it, that you actually are proclaiming these words, that they are something that are real for you. If you can't, then just allow everybody else to say it and take it in. If you're new to the Christian faith, if you've never been in church before and you're here tonight, then, and you just, just listen to this because this will give you the, the basis of what our faith is all about. But if you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, this is your chance to really, really proclaim this. I was going to say act, kind of like if I was your, like your drama teacher, getting you to bring out, you don't need to act. This is truth. So let's say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well done, Werbs. Well done. Nothing dreary or dirgy about it.
I believe and trust in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for that statement of faith, the creed that we've been able to proclaim. And tonight, Lord, as we think about resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, we ask that you'll speak to us, that you may lift our eyes towards Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul um, wrote to the church, the Christians gathered in a place called Corinth. He wrote two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. That kind of makes a little bit of sense. And at the end of the first letter, to, uh, chapter 15 of uh, his letter to the Corinthians, Paul kind of summarises that Christian faith. Actually, as we read it now, you'll realise where a lot of this Apostles' Creed has come from. But Paul has written for the first 14 chapters about church politics and love and gifts of the Spirit. And he's talked about how you do relationships with one another. He's written about all sorts of different things. And then he gets to this final chapter and he says, let me just remind you, this is the good news, the gospel. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news about Jesus. It'll come up on the screens. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you would have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, through some, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul is saying, this is the central message of the gospel. And the central message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus is this. That whilst you have sinned and turned away from God, what that in essence means is sin turns us in upon ourselves. It kind of, if you imagine kind of physically, it's like when we look into our stomach, we navel gaze, we kind of turn in on ourselves. Sin is when we, we turn away from who we've been created by and what we've been created for and we've looked to ourselves. We have made ourselves king. In other words, what we've done is we've said no to God who's created us and we've said yes to ourselves. And our sin, as Paul writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Us saying no to God leads to eternal separation, death away from God. And so Paul writes, well, the good news, the good news, if that's your normal state, that that's who you are and that's how you live, the good news is that Jesus has died for your sins. That even though you are a sinner and you do all these things and you've turned away and you've said no to God and his love for you, Jesus, who's never done that, who has always and forever said yes to God, takes our place and reverses our no by giving us his yes, 
his yes, which was even to death on a cross. And so Jesus died our death. But he didn't stay dead. Jesus rose to life. Resurrection happened. Three days later, Jesus defeated death, defeated the no that we had been saying and left it in the grave. What I love about the imagery of the resurrection is that the moment, the moment that changes the history of the whole entire world, your life, my life, was kept hidden, was secret, happened out of sight. A better song that we sing now, not Oasis nonsense, a better song that we sing here in church. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Today for me, the kind of end of the summer, first day back at work, my alarm was set. It went off first thing this morning. I hadn't set my alarm pretty much most of the summer. And it was this kind of feeling as you kind of turn to smack the alarm to turn it off. And it's kind of that kind of grogginess and feeling as you kind of wake up. Jesus has been dead for three days. We don't know what actually happened at that point. It's almost whether there was some kind of eternal alarm clock that went off and Jesus went, and groggily kind of woke up. We don't know whether it was just a silent kind of, and he starts breathing. We don't know what that moment was because Jesus, hidden in the grave, came back to life. Not resuscitation, but resurrection. Jesus was changed and was different. And so that moment, although that was hidden, he then went to show everybody and to show the world the effects of the resurrection. The women had come to the tomb. They'd come to see him because they'd been weeping and couldn't believe that he'd been dead uh, for three days. They were distraught, thinking that their saviour is now dead. The disciples then run. Peter and John, they run into into the tomb. They see him. He then presents himself to the 12 in the upper room. He meets with 500 people in one go. Look, this isn't some kind of magic trick. This isn't some kind of hallucinogenic moment or whatever the word is. He's real. He's there. He's alive in front of them. And he presents himself to James and and then to Paul. The resurrection has happened and this is the good news. Your sin has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. It is placed in the grave, but life comes. Resurrection happens. And then Paul goes on in the chapter, chapter 15 to talk about the fact that if resurrection hasn't happened, you may as well all pack up and go home. Thanks for coming to church. I hope you've had a nice donut and a nice coffee. See you later. It's not exactly what Paul says. But that's the gist of it. If resurrection's not real, then none of this makes any sense, doesn't matter, isn't important. But resurrection is real and Jesus rose from the grave. And then he continues in chapter 15 with these words. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish 
What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body, as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendour of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendour, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendour. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Um, If you've been around Werbs at all recently, if you've um, ever heard me preach before, you will know that um, gardening is not my thing. But I know enough about gardening that the seeds that we plant, when they grow, don't just become bigger seeds. There's something different. They are changed in form. They are a plant. They are a flower. They are um, a tree that produces fruit. Whatever it may be, the seed, the tiny little thing that goes down into the ground and is covered in soil and then is watered and takes nutrients from the soil, grows into something different than what was planted. Paul is trying to get that imagery across to us. FYI, for those of you who are interested, my roses are doing really well. Um, Another sermon. Don't worry about it if you don't. That doesn't make any sense to you. Um, Paul's saying that our earthly bodies, what is sown in our earthly bodies, is not what happens in our spiritual bodies. We are sown perishable, we are raised imperishable. That is resurrection. We don't just become some kind of spiritual being, if that's how you read this or that's what you're starting to wonder. It's not like we just become some floaty ghost type character sitting up on the clouds eating Philadelphia and saying everything is wonderful. We don't become angels when we die. The angels wish to become like us. But we have spiritual bodies, heavenly bodies, that are different from our earthly. And if you're anything like me, that's really good news. Because I know, and I am starting to become more and more aware of the limitations of my physical body. As I get older, different things ache. There are people nodding mainly at their parents, actually. I can see things going on. Uh, things ache. Things start to stop working as you would hope, them, hope they do. Our heavenly bodies, bodies, eternal bodies, are raised imperishable. Revelation chapter 21 tells us the fullness of what this looks like. John writes this. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more pain, no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. All pain, all sickness, all disease, all disability, gone. We are raised imperishable, unkillable, undiable, if that's a word. Matt, I doubt it. We are raised different to how we have been sown. And if you're struggling to get this, let me illustrate this by talking about Jesus. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus was resurrected, the women who had been following him for three years, who loved him, who worshipped him, who, who were part of his kind of entourage, who were there at the foot of the cross as he hung on the cross, dying for them. As they were weeping and mourning and grieving, they go to the tomb and they don't recognise him. How can it be that people who are that emotionally moved and and scarred by the death of their friend who they love cannot realise who he is stood in front of them? They think he's the gardener. Why? Why? It's because our resurrected bodies are the same, but yet different. We are sown perishable. We are raised imperishable. Jesus, resurrected, bears the scars for us so that we might not have them any longer. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, is a gift given to us by Jesus because what he did for us on the cross. So what does this all mean for us? What does this leave, where does this leave us today um, in 2019 or whatever we might be? I want to say three things briefly as I close. I think first and foremost, this gives us hope. Hope that this isn't all There is. That there is something more to my life and to my being and my purpose than just getting to 21 years old and then slowly decaying from that point onwards. That's what it is, by the way. So if you're over 21, you are now decaying. That's scientific fact, apparently. Sorry to be such a bearer of such good news. Um, A resurrected body and eternal life means that there is more. There is something else. And so we can have hope even in the midst of suffering. Even when we are walking through cancer or illness or disability or whatever it might be, we can have hope that we are these earthly limitations will be done and that in heaven where we have eternal life we are raised with imperishable bodies and there is no more cancer or illness or disability. 
we can walk through suffering with hope. The second thing eternal life and the resurrected body gives to us is perspective. I, I do this weird thing, and it might just be me, and uh, at this point, this is wisdom of Phil, not scriptural wisdom, so feel free to ignore this if you think I'm nuts. But what I sometimes do is I, um, when I'm going through something, whether it's good or bad or whatever it is, or I know it's a kind of significant season, I, um, in my prayer time, will kind of throw myself forward 10, 20 years and then imagine myself 10, 20 years' time, and then I turn back and I look at the now. And I try to think to myself, what, how will I see this, this season in 10, 20 years' time? It's mainly to help me get some kind of perspective on what's going on in the moment. Okay, so that's wisdom of Phil. You can ignore that bit if you don't like it, but that's what I do. But the fact that we have resurrected bodies and life eternal means that actually we should all be thinking with an eternal perspective. That we shouldn't just be looking at where we are here in the now, but we should be thinking of the things set before us for eternity. So why do we sweat the small stuff? Why do we get angry and upset and grumpy about, frustrated about, I don't know, my kid hasn't done something again when I've asked them again. What's the eternal perspective on that? Does it really matter. Again, that helps, I believe, in the midst of suffering and pain. When you realise that the eternal perspective is imperishable, no more pain, no more death, no more crying. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting gives us hope and it gives us perspective. And the third thing, I think, is that it's, it's a gift freely given. It's a gift given to you. It's a gift given to me. It's a gift given to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a gift freely given. And so whilst we then start having hope and perspective, it challenges us and it shapes us and it moulds how we live out our faith with that eternal perspective for the people around us, those whom we love, those whom we study with, live with, play sport next to, whatever it might be. Do we have an eternal perspective for them as much as we do for us? Who are the people, therefore, that we want to introduce to this free gift? To hope and pray that they may come to know Jesus and that this life isn't all that life is about but there is something else. We've got a really exciting September and a whole new season ahead of us here at Werbs. But I want to encourage you. We're really praying for our Alpha course this term. We want to see hundreds of people come on Alpha. Not because it's got anything to do with us, not because it's about us feeling better or excited about how many people we get here, but because we are desperate to see this city transformed, we are desperate for this city to know the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that they may have eternal life. And so when we get this, it should motivate us and shape how we live out our lives and our relationships with everybody else 
around us. Be praying for them. Be inviting them to church. Be inviting them to Alpha. Connecting with them in any opportunity that we have. This becomes a priority because we've received it. We have hope. We have a perspective. And we want to share that with others. We're going to pray. Can I invite you to stand? One of the things we do here at Werbs is we like to give people the opportunity to accept that free gift that is given. And you may be here um, for the first time, you may have never received, the, or may have never heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But you might want to receive that for yourself this evening. A resurrected body and life eternal. You want to say thank you to Jesus for what he's done for you. And so you can make that decision here and now. This is, there's no uh, manipulation, there's no um, emotional kind of coercion for anybody here, but this is a free gift given to you if you would like to receive it. And so what I'm going to ask everyone to do is just to um, bow your heads and close your eyes. Not because there's any power or magic or weirdness in how we pray or anything like that. It's just allowing you to do business with God out of, and not worrying about what other people are doing or looking at or watching you. This is just you and him. If you would like to receive that free gift of eternal life, what I'm going to ask you to do in a few moments is to be bold and to raise your hand. What you're really doing is you're cementing something in the physical that's gone on in the spiritual on the inside. It allows you to say, Lord, I want this. This evening, as we were praying in here before the service, there was a whole gathering of people outside the door, back, kind of almost banging on the door, making lots of noise. They were desperate to come in here. They were wanting to get into church. And Jesus has that kind of, I have that sense that Jesus is desperate to be in relationship with you. He wants to kind of get in. He wants to kind of connect with you. He wants to be with you. And so all you have to do is open the door. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I want you. So if that's you this evening, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. It'll be the best thing you ever do. One, two, three. If you want that free gift, raise your hand now. Amazing. Thank you, I see those hands. Wonderful. Let me pray for you. And you might want to just repeat this prayer in your heart as I say it. Loving Father, I thank you for that free gift of eternal life. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you're for me. I'm sorry for where I have said no to you. And I thank you that Jesus said yes. Thank you that he died for me and rose to life so that I may be resurrected and have eternal life with you. I thank you for the gift given and I receive you now, Jesus. Amen. Amen.